Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Well, welcome lovers of product. Today I'm here with Ben Taylor. Ben, who I've known for a little while now since uh, his startup prior to Data Robot, but Ben's now at Data Robot, where I believe you're now their chief evangelist. Is that correct? That's right. So, Ben, why don't you kick this off? Give us a little overview of your background. Yeah, sure. So, my career has looked like this. I think for anyone who has gray hair in their beard and they're working in the data science or AI space, they didn't go to school for that because we didn't have data science as a topic or a curriculum. So I studied chemical engineering. I worked for Intel and Micron for five years. I had an opportunity to go work for Fund, and then I worked for a Sequoia startup called HireVue, where I was their chief data scientist for four years. And then I got the itch to go do a startup three years ago, focused on deep learning, which was kind of the new hot topic at the time. And then uh, we recently joined DataRobot, uh, two months ago. I forget when the announcement went out. I think it was a month ago. And so now I work maybe 70% marketing, 30% R&D. But it's, it's, I'm super excited because it's what I'm the most excited about is evangelism and on the marketing side. How do, you, how do you make people care? How do you make people care about your product? How do you make people care about what you're working on? Because the best product or the best technology won't necessarily win if you don't have the right messaging. So tell me, how do you make people care? it's fascinating. You get into the, you, you study this, the psychology of it. You, you really need to make a, a connection. And so a common pitfall of product companies is they do product centered marketing. So think of if I'm a hardware company, these are the features and speeds. This is why you need to buy our product. Our product is fantastic. The product is the center of the story versus customer centric stories. So one example I love is the Da Vinci robot. It's a laparoscopic robot, multi-million dollar machine that a surgeon will buy to do surgery on us. And if you look at their commercials, they don't mention a single feature. They're telling a surgeon's story. They're telling a patient's story. It's very emotional, very relatable. It draws us in as people. So you need to connect emotionally. You need to appeal to the emotional mind. But the temptation with product companies is we try to hammer out the rationale on why we have 20 features that make us awesome. But there's no there's no emotional hook there. It you know it just comes across as kind of a dry pitch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely true. <laughs> it's interesting too if you start thinking about uh, you know, the emotional hook in our social media too, right? And and that as a product and, and how you know information disseminates through the populace based upon the emotions it evokes, not necessarily just the the information contained in that or the data contained in that information. Yeah. And if you can appeal to the emotional mind, we are less objective, less rational. So the perfect example is falling in love. So when you fall in love with your partner, you probably didn't criticize them for how they ate or like different things early on. Like later when you, you kind of get <laughs> later, when you kind of get used to the new normal, you're more likely to say, Hey, you know, don't put toothpaste on the sink or don't eat with your mouth open. But during, but it's the same with your products. So if you appeal to the emotional mind, you're less likely to be critical of a product issue or a bug. And there's opportunities for people to fix that. So if you look at examples like Qualtrics, 
was Qualtrics that much better than SurveyMonkey? You know, it's, it's experience management assessments or surveys. Is there really a technology component that is earth shattering? Probably not, but their messaging was great. And you can also look at companies that have failed that have really good technology and really good products, but there's no emotional appeal. And, and the other thing I was thinking about is, I think when we, you build products, you, you actually love, you love what you built too much and you want to get full credit for your work. So, and this is natural for data scientists too. We explain the how, but executives, they don't care about the how. You, you don't need to see 10 slides about how I tried this, I tried this, I hit this, I did that, and then I got to this solution. You just want to see the solution. You just want to get to the conclusion because you're busy. You don't care about the art. You've got a thousand other things going on. So I think sometimes when we build products, we want full credit for the features, but they're, yeah. So I, I love it. I think it's a fun topic. So it's something... I was going to say, tell us how you got into data science. You know, you mentioned your, you know, we're, we're going to use the video for this, so it'll be hard for the listeners to see, but you were all over the place, right? So tell me about how you got into data science and what fascinates you about the field. Yeah, so it was back in 2003. I, a funny backstory, the reason I learned how to program, which was kind of the starting point to getting into data science, was because I was a little bit of a celebrity at the time because I was living in the woods while I went to school and it made news, state news, and I had a few national radio talk shows, newspaper articles, because I, I was going to college, taking full credits, and living in the woods in the snow. Now, you know, we're going to have to dig into that a little bit, because you say it so casually, like, you know, I was living in the woods, in the snow, you know, like, it's no big deal, that's what everyone does. So, tell yeah. us a little bit about the story, the rationale, that whole process of living in the woods, and yeah. you're in Utah at this point, right? Yeah, so Utah. So not not the best place to live in the woods because the coldest it got when I was sleeping outside was 15 below zero. And the, the funny thing about this story is people will look at other people's careers and they want to mimic them or emulate them. And sometimes that's impossible to do because so much of your career is luck. Right here, right time, right moment. And so to distill a career down, we think about competencies. And so I think one of the competencies that has helped me is I don't really care about social norms. I don't really care about boundaries. I'm very, I can be very stubborn and I can be obsessed about something. So if I think something will work, I'll just go do it. So living in the woods, there wasn't a social norm to say that that was okay. And there wasn't a template to say that that would even work. But I was obsessed about it because I was working for the forest service. I'm surrounded by a bunch of hippies. And so you can imagine right now, if we're having a conversation, I say, hey, um, Eric, I'm thinking about living in the woods while I go to school next semester, you would say, yeah, don't do that. Just focus on school. But if I'm surrounded by hippies, you know, what, what's my echo chamber or what's my sounding board going to be? It's going to be, oh, that sounds fantastic. You, <laughs> like, you, of course you should. And so They might be a little more open than most people. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. You know, I don't know. Yeah, it was a great experience. The, the funny thing, though, is once the media caught wind of it and, it and I got the media attention, the university president had to comment on it, and I became a celebrity on campus. So I'd be walking to school, and a college kid who's essentially my peer would see me and have this, like, they, they would do this double take, they'd get really excited, and they'd interrupt me while I'm walking to class. And they, in a really excited tone, they'd say, holy cow, holy cow, I can't believe it's you you or homeless Ben. And I would say, yep, that's me. And, and the thing that's so silly about all of this, whatever came out of my mouth was gospel to them. It was profound. It was, 
it was just a bunch of nonsense. Like, so if you said, why are you living in the woods? And I said, well, I, was, I didn't want to pay rent. Your response to that should say, okay, that's kind of weird. But their response, these other college kids, they'd say, that's really deep. That's unbelievable. And it's like, so it's just funny just having all these like, <laughs> so, so if you want to know what it's like to be a hippie prophet, unintentionally, I know what that was like during a very brief moment in my career. But getting back to your question, I had to learn how to program because I had a blog, I had fans, they'd get on and comment on my blog, I'd post little videos and images of my daily adventures, and I would reference that for the media. And so I learned HTML, CSS, and then I went in chemical engineering, we actually got exposed to numerical methods, which is actually more advanced engineering type programming where you're solving a problem. And it was at that moment that I became hooked on high performance computing. So the idea of big computers working for a long time was really exciting to me. I think because it was tricking my brain, thinking that time and compute translated to value. So if I told you I had a thousand computers working for a week, my brain would say whatever came out the other side was useful, was valuable. Yeah, yeah, it, was, yeah. it was deep. Yeah, it was deep. But that, that's not necessarily true because I've worked on huge computing systems where that is not true. They work for a week and it's garbage. So, But I think early on, I, I was so excited about that. So I naturally found myself working on internships and projects. At one point, I worked for the NASA Space Grant. As a web developer, nothing too sexy, but I had a little NASA logo on my paycheck. But I got into satellite image processing where I was using, working on big computers. They're running all week. And so people today, they think I'm an AI nerd, but deep down, I'm still a high-performance computing nerd. So I, I like big hardware, but... AI works well on big hardware. So if you're solving big problems on big GPUs, big machines, it's a it really scratches that itch for me. Yeah, absolutely. I think those those things must overlap a good bit, especially, you know, looking at AI as machine learning, right? Yeah. Yep. So talk to me about your history, right? A little bit about the jobs, what you learned from each, what you're currently doing at Data Robot. Yeah. So my first real job was working for Intel and Micron, and I worked in their fab in the bunny suit. And so the bunny suit is this white ninja clean room costume. So the only thing you can see are my eyes. And so your listeners won't be able to see this, but it looks pretty cool. And you work in this clean room environment where if you and I walked outside and if you took a breath of fresh air, it's not going to sound fresh in a minute. You take a breath of fresh air there are over a million particles per cubic meter. And in this clean room, there are less than 100. And so if you have allergies, it's fantastic. If you're worried about COVID, it's fantastic because there's nothing in this clean room. All, all the particles get hit down into the floor. Everything's cleaned. So I worked in the clean room, but the first week it was, I was shocked because it was like walking onto a Star Wars spaceship. The entire place is automated with robotics. There are robots zipping around on the ceiling, dropping things down like 15 feet, picking stuff up in the entire fab. And the room I worked in was called the billion dollar room because there was over a billion dollars of hardware in a room because they have these tools that are $100 million. So it was really fascinating to work with incredible technology. But at the same time, I felt like I was bored. So after the honeymoon phase, I felt pretty bored because you're listening to your MP3 player in your clean room suit, you get a, a pager goes off and you go and reboot this multi-million dollar machine. And so I went and got my master's in chemical engineering and I'm essentially rebooting a machine and that's it. 
or I'm doing some statistical process control is very basic. And, and I don't want to belittle, like, of course, there's extremely complicated stuff that you can do there that they do do there that would be unbelievable, like, you know, PhD quality stuff, but I wasn't doing that stuff because I was a grunt, you know, they have a lot of these grunts. I worked there for five years. I worked in process control. So I learned to work with a team. I, I learned to kind of understand some of the politics that happen with upper management. I, I wasn't scratching that high performance compute itch. And then I got a job opportunity to go work at a hedge fund. And that was, that was really funny because at work, someone came up to me, one of my friends named Girish, and he said, hey, I just found a job opening. And they're asking for a GPU expert that likes artificial intelligence. And I know that you do that for fun. So imagine if you worked at a hedge fund doing what you like to do for fun. And I, I thought, yeah, that sounds amazing. And at this hedge fund, so I, I got the job at the hedge fund. And during the interview process, they said, we've never hired a chemical engineer, but we're willing to. Because typically they'd hire people that had actually focused on quant. like And quant is slang for quantitative analysis. So actually programming and building stock models for the stock market. So I joined them, built out a 600 GPU cluster, that was actually a pretty negative experience for me when it comes to cloud, buy versus cloud. So do you buy millions of dollars of hardware or do you use the cloud? And after the hedge fund experience, I was a huge cloud fan. Like, absolutely. You'd always use the cloud because with the cloud, you can pause depreciation. Because if your research team is doing work today, if you don't need that work this weekend, you turn it all off and you're not being billed for that work. But at the hedge fund, we built out a 600 GPU cluster that thing is depreciating every second it's not used. It is just, and not only is it depreciating, it's going to zero. Yeah. It will hit zero. And so that was very stressful to have a compute. It was exciting and stressful. I'm of the opinion now you need both. You need cloud, you need on-prem for different reasons. What are the reasons? So cloud's great for scaling. You can scale, you can hit your service level agreements. You would never, it's very dangerous for you to depend on-prem for a process that could fail. But I like on-prem for sunk cost research. So here's an example. So you and I are talking. I'm working on some R&D or innovation. Some of that's tied to marketing. Maybe we come up with an idea and we say, wouldn't that be neat if we used a camera to detect how many calories are in the food you're eating? And if we have a short discussion, we say, yeah, that sounds really nice. Let's go do that. On the cloud, before I even start the research, I'm going to realize, well, that's going to cost me $1,300. And now I'm actually not going to do the research. But if I have sunk cost hardware, I have a lot more flexibility on the creativity side. I don't feel like I'm being nickel and dimed for everything. And there is cost savings there. So the so maybe here's the way to split it for the people that are listening. If you find that you are training weeks at a time, like if you could actually load a, a month of training, and by training, I mean you're you're working GPUs to learn a new AI model, it will be more cost effective for you to have a piece of hardware in your company that is doing that training. Because Amazon, you're going to be spending tens of thousands of dollars per month, potentially, where you can buy servers for 20000 40000 60000 80000 that will do that and as a sunk cost. Yeah, so there's benefits for, to having sunk cost hardware for R&D. Because otherwise, this kind of gets back to the, the supply and demand or that you don't want to tax something that you need. And if you're taxing research in your nickel and diming research, you're not going to get a lot of research. Yeah, yeah. It just it, it gives you a different perspective, I guess. Yeah, yep. And then fortunately with that kind of meandering career path, HireVue was hiring their first data science hire. 
And I think having worked at Intel and Micron and having worked at a hedge fund, that brought me up to kind of the the line where I was considered for their their first data science hire to build out their data science team. I think if I hadn't worked at a hedge fund, I probably wouldn't have met the mark because I, I know they were looking at some other candidates that were pretty qualified. And so I was really lucky to join them and then have that experience building out a data science team, filing a lot of patents around machine learning, and then delivering an AI product for them. So I was there for four years and I loved all of it. It was great. And they, they helped build my brand. So my brand was non-existent before HireVue. I mean, beyond the deep thinking homeless college student brand. Yeah, that, that brand had expired. And I think the value of that, <laughs> yeah, because this was now over 10 years later. So my 2003 brand, which was disappearing online, I think on LinkedIn, I had 400 connections. Now I'll be close to 40,000 followers soon, probably this year. So it, that's been really, really helpful for me today. Yeah, that that's interesting. Let's dig into that in a second. But well, let's let's dig into that now. Let's let's talk a little bit about how you built your brand at HireVue. So this isn't just brand related, it's also career related. We learn through experience, which I, I think is really fascinating because so with my brand, I had to make a lot of mistakes. So I'm out speaking for HireVue, speaking at HR conferences. I am making a lot of mistakes speaking. So I, I remember in Philadelphia, I was speaking at a conference called PSYOP and someone followed up with me, I think a year later, and they said, yeah, that talk that you gave at PSYOP, you were a real ass. And I was like, oh, really? Like, like I'm getting feedback. Like, you, you were a real ass the way you deliver that talk because I was criticizing the audience for not having the level of statistical knowledge that they should. So I was actually like educating them. Like, hey, I found out you guys do this. You should actually do this. And with that talk, I was right. But it's just, it's not the way to talk to, that's one of the rules of storytelling, never offend your audience. So I'm offending my audience. (laughs) So the issue with talking about AI to any audience is you can miss the mark. You can be too technical, too much jargon. It's not tied to value. And so with HireVue, I was able to make a lot of mistakes, get a lot of feedback, but I, I cared about my feedback. I wanted to be the number one speaker at a conference. And so eventually I got there. So I think out of conferences where they rate people and give you feedback, there were three conferences where I was number one for the entire conference based on the audience feedback. And speaking's great too. It gives you an opportunity to meet people like yourself. I I love interacting with different speakers, especially going out to dinner and getting to know people on a more personal level. And so my brand started to grow. The the great thing with HireVue is they were very well connected into the Fortune 100. Half of their customers came from the Fortune 100 and so I'm able to have personal connections with people from Delta, Uber, IBM, JP Morgan, and get these connections. So that was great. But then after leaving HireVue and doing my startup full-time, I think my brand kind of went to a different level. And that kind of hits on inspiration. So if I'm going to go speak at an AI conference, there's 100 other speakers there. They're talking about the same thing. They're all talking about stuff that's very similar. So I need to talk about something that is different from all of them. And so that's kind of the challenge today is if I'm going to go present at a conference, I want to have the content that is the most engaging, the most exciting, the most inspirational. And it's a very different mindset from your typical data scientist because your typical data scientist is a technophile. They want to get into the weeds and they're introverted. They're not going to dance on stage and sing. That's outside their norm. So I I tend to be more extroverted and I'm also more controversial. 
which can be helpful with marketing or brand building. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, I know we, we veered off a little bit. So from career wise now, you know, higher view of four years, then you went and did your startup. Yeah, that was a tough decision because at higher view, I'd handpicked every member of my team and they were all PhD physicists. So definitely smarter than I was. How big is I, the team? It was, I think we hit six, maybe six. So it wasn't huge, but and really so you tell- said all PhD physicists. Yeah. It, which is funny because we even, I think for the third one we were hiring, we even had an agreement to not hire because the CTO and I realized we were doing this. And so for the third hire, we or the fourth hire, we said, for the next hire, we will not hire a PhD physicist. We actually made that agreement, like a commitment. And then we did, like three days later. Like they come through the interview process and they're just, they're so good. They're, they're so smart. They do so well on all the technical questions because you want to have some diversity. It really helps to have diversity on the team because you get diversity of thought. And the thing that leads to innovation is creativity, but you need diversity of thought. So to, to have everyone... Our, our team was diverse because they were different types of physicists, but you know, I'll, I'll be pretty open about that bias. I, I don't have a PhD. I'm a PhD dropout. But if you have a strong background in physics, it's hard for me not to take notice. And why is that? I mean, I think I know why it is, but... Well, there are, so the level of math that they learn compared to an engineer. So an engineer will learn calculus, vector calculus, but physicists will go all the way to like matrix calculus. Like they're, they're, they're actually dealing with math that, so, so I think the, the summary is a physicist level of mathematical understanding and abstract ideas. So even understanding quantum mechanics or the derivation for e equals MC squared. So every, everyone in the US, they've heard of E equals MC squared, but the actual derivation from scratch to that conclusion and being able to follow that and understand it, the physicists are there, they can understand it. And it takes, they've learned how to learn. And I think that's the takeaway for me from school is AI and data science is all new. And I might cry or be sad that I studied chemical engineering and physical chemistry, because what the hell does that have to do with anything? But I learned to learn and I, I think physicists just go to another level. The amount of learning to learn is kind of on the extreme tail. I'm, a lot of people could be amazing AI data scientists without having a physics background. But I, I definitely have a bias there from the ones I've interacted with. And what, you know, how, tie that in for our listeners. You know, the, the fact that you wanted people that were excellent at learning to learn, had a you know, strong mathematical background to their role in, in your organization, which was data science. Term. Yeah, so why is that helpful in the job? Why is that useful? The, the huge issue we run into with AI, it's actually moving way too fast. So you're, the job I need you to do 12 months from now, no one is qualified to do it. I'm not qualified. You are not qualified. No one's qualified to do it because the landscape is changing so quickly. And we've worked with local universities that have data science programs. And we worked with a university three years in a row. Three years in a row, we decided to disengage because there was too big of a gap between what the students knew and what they had to know for the industry. And so I think that's why it's so appealing to hire someone who's really good at learning to learn because I don't have emotional bandwidth to teach anyone and I need them to learn to learn. I need them. And so the, the other thing too, we talk about is passion. If you can hire someone who's if they have a lot of passion around the space and they're obsessed, you have high confidence that they'll continue to learn. Like, cause how disappointing would that be if I report to you 
we're working on an AI team. And if you have to come spoon feed me and say, hey, did you hear about this new NLP algorithm? Or hey, did you hear about this new thing going on? And if you're the one bringing that information to me, you should be really frustrated because I should be bringing that information to you. I should be so obsessed in this space that I'm telling you, hey, there's this new publication that came out. And maybe that's another thing. Some of the some of the new breakthroughs, you have to read publications and they're they're hard to read. They're confusing. They've got some math in there. For the physicists, they can move through just about any scientific publication. But that it actually gets back to bleeding edge research versus sometimes there's a there's a trailing gap. I, I don't recommend that companies use bleeding edge research, but sometimes we develop our own because we have big data sets. And that's what we talk about with companies. Your algorithm is not your IP or breakthrough. It's the data set that you, so HireVee has over 10 million interviews. That's their IP. It's not, they use this algorithm or they had this insight that is unique. It's no, they, they have insights that come from this data set. Yeah. Yeah. Understood. So let's jump back as, uh, as we're wont to do. You're now at your startup, right? Tell me about, you know, starting the startup and then eventually joining data robot. Yeah. So this definitely hits hard on product because so you're starting an AI company. That's great. That's fantastic. And we started, I thought we started too late, but we started just right with the hype cycle. There's so much hype around AI automobile startups. At the time we started, there were talks of some startups in the Bay Area getting 50x multipliers. So five zero, which is insanity. So on sales, right? Yes. So they have revenue, like let's say they have a million dollars in revenue, they're a $50 million startup, depending at their, their pace. That hype has gone down. But so we, we start, we decide we, we're going to do what's called AutoML, which is essentially making machine learning or AI simpler. So we're going to take something like deep learning. Hey, let's, is, let's, let's ask a yeah. clarifying question yeah. here. Because, you know, when people talk about AI today, they mean a lot of different things, or generally probably they mean one thing, but how do you define AI? So this is a funny question that comes up a lot because I think in our domain, in our industry, people get stuck on definitions. And so if I'm talking to an executive, I'll just say artificial intelligence. But if I'm talking to an IT director or maybe a director of data science, maybe I'd say machine learning or deep learning, something that's more specific. So machine learning is you're teaching a computer to learn through experience. And by experience, it's the data that you put through it. So how many interviews has the computer seen? How many resumes has the computer seen? The computer is looking for patterns. And I think AI is a very large umbrella. So AI can include a lot of different things, some chatbots and, and different things that maybe they're not necessarily predictive models. So I think of AI as being a very large umbrella. And then you have different parts inside, like machine learning and deep learning is a very specific, smaller part of machine learning. Deep learning was a breakthrough in 2014 that caught an unbelievable hype cycle, like aqua hires at $30 million ahead. I was trying to hire deep learning experts in Boston in 2014, and it was impossible. So you go meet with students graduating from MIT, and they would say, yeah, I don't graduate for nine months, but I already have my job offer at Google or Facebook. And so as an employer you get really desperate. And so I remember sending out emails, any publication I found from a student, I'd send them an email to their, you see their emails on the publication, I'd send them an email. And in the email, I'd say, I know you have a job offer from Google. I know you have a job offer from Facebook. I'm willing to pay you more. I'm willing to give you better job title. I'm willing to you know, progress your career faster. No responses. 
so yeah, sorry, got a topic again, but no, 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 I think it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting how, you know, like, because you're saying that the space is moving so fast and we have, you know, I think of AI as an umbrella, right. Over a lot of different things. I mean, I remember studying it in school, you know, doing rules-based, you know, artificial intelligence, right. Very simple things or decision trees or neural nets. And there's all these different algorithms, right. That we might be talking about, but a lot of it today is when people are looking at it is, is machine learning, right. Yeah. And, and I think to kind of hit, I really want to make sure you answer the kind of the, the focus of the, the startup question. So the startup is product market fit. So how are you going to find a product that people want? And I think early on, there's maybe a little too much technophile where we're focused on the, the details of the technology. And so we're a solution looking for a problem. And I think after going through this experience, designing a product worth scaling is fascinating because whose opinion are you going to trust? Your opinion? So I'm building a product. Should I trust my opinion? Should I trust the customer's opinion or the prospect's opinion? And I have a very different mindset today than I had three years ago. Because three years ago, I think it kind of started out bootstrapped. It started out bootstrapped where we were looking for consulting opportunities that could develop into a product. So our early customers were a drone company, and we had chat books where we're deploying on their iPhone. And so we're doing a lot of custom work. We don't have a product yet that will do this. And, and something that came out initially is every customer looked different. And that's a problem. Yeah. That's a huge problem. Because if every customer looks different, what do your sales decks look like? What's your product? Like, what's your platform? How's this working? And I think as a young startup, it's, money can be a very dangerous thing because you chase it. So if I'm working over here and then we have a meeting and I realize you're the CEO of some large security company, you can, a lot of young startups can be killed because they land a monster account or they think they can. That's even worse. You yeah, think yeah. You I mean, can, I think the landing isn't nearly as bad as thinking they can. They see yeah. this pot of gold, grass is greener over there. They yeah. Can- well, we we were doing work for a space exploration company and I think we had six or seven meetings there. We're doing a proof of concept. And so we were, we thought we were going to land this seven figure contract. And it was for a huge space agency that we thought like this, this will be amazing. And then things happen. Like, you know, they had some layoffs. So like stuff happens here. So a lot of times when you're working a deal, you have an advocate inside the company and your advocate is a key person. Your advocate can't move. They can't disappear. They can't be fired. And if they are, what happened to your deal? And so, I, yeah, so that, that's definitely something to warn other individuals that are starting a startup that if I had to do it again, I'd much rather find a problem worth solving and find three, at least three nearly identifiable champions that are willing to allow me to build a product to solve that problem and maybe even ignore revenue the first year. Like I will actually just pair with a VP of engineering at Oracle under MNDA or like someone at Amazon under MNDA and we will find a problem we're solving that a year from now, they might consider buying it because it's helpful. It's useful. Yeah. And, and that's the other thing with the startup. There's so much urgency. I think ur- urgency can, activity without progress, urgency can kill a startup because you're working on things that satisfy a single customer where they don't really fix the bigger product vision. So startup now working on problems and then, Data robot, right? Yeah. So we were aware of each other. I think our first year we had five acquisition offers during the the hype cycle, which was crazy. Because what what does that do to a young founder? 
So if you're a young founder and you get five acquisition offers the first year, I think that can do some bad things because you, you get more confidence than you deserve to have and you mislead yourself on your product efforts. So like, so that, that was pretty distracting the first year. We, we, so we got introduced to Data Robot. I actually got introduced to them a long time ago before the startup because we ran into each other when I was trying to recruit at MIT. We, we ran into each other when I was trying to recruit top AI data science talent. So Data Robot had focused on AutoML, I think first, they were very early in the space. They, in 2013 or 12, they'd started with AutoML around structured data. And they had since grown into this big, respectable player in the field. So they, they, they had a lot of customers, but more importantly, kind of coming back to experience, Data Robot had experience with, they probably had the most experience in the industry when it came to solving real problems for real people. And with experience comes mistakes. So they had made a lot of mistakes, but they had fixed those mistakes. They had developed products and features like MLOps and data acquisition and, and all of these things in the pipeline that they became a very appealing partner for us. And so we were focused on deep learning, which was a new component that they were already starting to build out internally. And so that was a good match or good pair where we knew of each other. It was complementary technology. And we liked where they were headed. Awesome. And that's what you are, where you are today. Talk to me about you know, what problems Data Robot's trying to solve and what your role is there. Yeah. So Data Robot, they're trying to really cement themselves or anchor themselves as the go-to for enterprise AI. So if you're building a product and if you have data flowing through your process, there's not a guarantee, but there's a good chance, depending on the data type, that you could use Data Robot to build a model and deploy that model inside your application. And for people that don't know what Data Robot is, or what they do, they're a platform that does what's called AutoML. So they were auto- they will automatically build a machine learning model that a lot of data scientists don't lack the experience. They they lack the experience to build. They haven't done enough hours or enough months to build a model that can compete at the level that Data Robot can. So yeah, so Data Robot their their goal is to potentially deliver the vast majority of enterprise models for any company. And they have thousands of use cases all over all sorts of industries. So they're doing a good job entering that space. So for me, for my role, it's really focused on evangelism. How do you make people care? And this is something I feel like I've, I've discovered by accident. So during my startup, when it, going back to brand building, so how have you helped me build my brand but during the startup, something else started happening. During the startup, we had companies like Fortune 50 banks. I don't want to just pepper through a bunch of name brands, but like big household brands that people know would reach out to say, Ben, can you come present? Can you come present to our company? And for me, why are they asking this? Why are they asking us to come on site? And, and I think there's a, a process there that's actually not attached to me. And the process is how can you have AI innovation or marketing that is very inspirational. Because if I'm going to go present to a large bank, what do they want to see? They don't want to see a product pitch. They want to see the latest and greatest. They want to see some AI technologies that inspire them, that fire them up, get their creative wheels turning, and get them excited to do something different this quarter. So inside Data Robot, that's some of the stuff that I'm working on. How do we make how do we make marketing and content that has an emotional appeal that tells our story in a way that resonates with executives. And, and that's kind of how you've built your brand forever in this space too, right? 
I mean, talk to me about some of the things you've talked about there, you know, throughout your career, maybe not just data robot, but some of the things you've done, some of the stories you've told. Yeah. So some of the things I've done that have attracted a lot of attention is get, this kind of gets back to not caring about social norms, but also not caring about what people have done where I'll go off, I'll leave the reservation. So I'll, I gave a talk in Chicago where I was showing that using deep learning, you could predict the outcome of a dating show, the bachelorette, the bachelor. So just looking at someone's face, I could predict who would win the show, which is fascinating, but it's also a little bit upsetting that what is the algorithm learning? Like the algorithm can just look at a man's face or a woman's face and decide that they will be paired up in this dating show. And how well and does that work? So the the best example, it worked surprisingly well. The best example was season, it's either season 20 or season 22. There's so, been that many? Holy shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the, the best part is we I had one of our- it gives you more data. Yeah, it gives you more data. But the best part is we had one of our data scientists manually scraping these profile headshots from the web from Bachelor. So like, think about like what you do for your job. Imagine spending two days going around the web, pecking and pulling down names, pulling down images and lists. So for this season, I love this example because, so for people that don't know the show, they'll have a man or a woman date 30 people. So this, this bachelor dates 30 women for a month and they go on these bucket list dates. Like they fly a helicopter over Hawaii and they, they do all these wonderful things to make them fall in love. And for this particular season, I think it was season 20, the bachelor picks our AI. So our AI system is ranking the whole season unseen. So we train on the previous seasons and then it ranks how well it thinks people will do. And the bachelor picks our AI's number third pick. So you might say, well, that's too bad. It didn't work that season, but he changes his mind two weeks later. Very controversial. Like for this season, it was very upsetting. Like he picks his mate, and then two weeks later, he changes his mind. First ever in Bachelor history, like super upsetting. Guy's a dick. He picks our AI's number one pick. And so when you see this example, it makes humans look really dumb. Like, well, it makes this guy look really shallow. So was there anything about the conversations? Was there anything about the dates? Or was it really something as easy as this machine learning prediction? We didn't get the number one pick for every season. Like that would have been like, you know, front page of the Wall Street Journal because we would have like, hacked the human, you know, something in the human DNA, but we, we did surprisingly well for all the seasons. Like we typically get top three pick, but a talk like that in Chicago is shocking. Like, you know, if you're presenting that to a hundred people, it's a memorable event. It's, they can't, they can't believe you would do that, but they also can't believe what it tells them. And so we had several examples like that, that I'd go and present. Um, and the, the thing I've learned today is some of my speaking style I've played to some storytelling tactics that I understand better today. So I was lucky to kind of have them then, but they're really powerful. I, I'm so excited to present after Corona because I think I can be a much better presenter than I've ever been. Yeah. And you have good stuff. You have good stuff prepped. Oh yeah. I've got good stuff. I well, Yeah. So I've got good stories, but I've got good, good stuff coming off the press or it's not the press. It's like the AI R and D machine. Yeah. Like, so we're, we're doing some fun stuff with COVID right now that will appeal to a large audience. And so that's, yeah, that's what I get excited. Can you give us a little, can you give us a little uh, sneak preview, you know, a little trailer of what uh, some of the, the topics for speaking are going to be coming up? 
Yeah. So the, one of the big ones for me now is you have customer centric stories, but the more powerful ones are patient centric because all of us know someone who has been sick. All of us know someone who's gone to the hospital. All of us know someone that will die and all of us will die. So healthcare related data science and AI problems are very relatable. They're very emotional, but I feel like they've also been, there haven't been great successes in healthcare when it comes to AI. And if anything, there have been big embarrassments. So there have been AI companies that have been, IBM Watson had a $64 million contract with a hospital network in Texas that was canceled halfway through. So like there've been these issues where they've had these public failures with healthcare. And so one of the things I'm working on recently is a patient level data related to COVID, but not just COVID, other healthcare issues like pneumonia, heart attack. And so that, that stuff, I get very excited about because if we can build AI that surgeons trust and surgeons depend on, that could save life. And so this, this actually gets much more personal. So my, my wife has chronic kidney disease. And so for 15 years, her kidneys are operating at 40%. And so she's been, she's had a kidney biopsy. She's been meeting with healthcare professionals, nephrologists. They have no idea what's wrong with her. They, They have no idea. And if you go meet with a nephrologist, it's very upsetting because they're looking at a piece of paper and they're literally looking at three or four numbers. Humans were limited to our digits, where I would argue if I had access to the entire West Coast, all of the blood work, all the patient level data and the outcomes on whether or not their kidneys failed and what they were diagnosed with, I would be able to use a very simple machine learning algorithm to diagnose my wife. And unfortunately today, it's not life and death. But this is just one of millions of examples that we deal with in the U.S. where your loved one is undiagnosed, but yeah. they could be diagnosed with AI. Yeah, no, there's, there's a lot of that. I can think to my wife and some of the issues she's had with uh, pancreatitis, similar kind of story where they're like, oh, it could be, you know, we, we have no idea is in essence what they say in a lot of cases, right? Yeah, um, it's a huge opportunity there. So I'm, I'm really excited to be partnering with some of these individuals in the healthcare space to, to make a difference worth celebrating. Yeah, it's, all it, it's of us, it, there's a research project, isn't there? All of us, I think that, that in essence lets you share a lot of your data with, I guess, I assume people doing data science, uh, data scientists, sorry. <laughs> uh, but there's a huge, you know, opt-in research program that I think is going on that, that's funded that will do that sort of thing, I believe. We should look it up because we're going to have to go to part two of this. There's no way we're going to cover, I'm like a quarter maybe through of the questions I wanted to cover with you today and we're almost an hour in. So if you don't mind, we'll, we'll have you back. No, that'd be great. Because we didn't talk about net promoter score, or like all this stuff that... No, we didn't talk about, I mean, things to come up, net promoter score, biases in AI, right? Racist algorithms. There's yeah. a lot we still have to cover, right? What people get wrong with AI. Yeah. So maybe something to throw out there as kind of a teaser. I, I wonder how this would go down with your product audience, but I don't trust the customer, which is like, so like, I would have never said that like three years ago, you'd be like, what do you mean? Like, you don't trust the customer? But like today, if we're designing a product and if you come back in the office and you're really excited to say the customers love it or the customers say this is the right feature to build, my scar tissue today, I would say I don't trust the customer. And then yeah. that, le- that leads to like, okay, asshole, like you don't trust the customer. What now? And, and that's a discussion. Like, if you don't no, trust I think the customer. That is an interesting discussion. <laughs> I, have some, I have some data on that too. Uh, yeah. Not a lot of data, but some very telling data. 
So yeah, let's let's jump into those things in uh, in round two. With that, okay. let's, uh, thank you, Elvis the Product, for joining us for this first half, maybe third. I don't know. Ben and I have a tendency to talk, but you're going to have more Ben Taylor coming. Thanks, Eric. <laughs>